0: This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, off from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. This is our business.
1: It's like nothing we've dealt with before.
0: Oh my golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Zach Moore, and the chief is not here this week. But I am joined by midshipman
1: Tony Black. What's up, Tony? <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Thanks, Zach. Thank- thanks for having me on. Yeah, I just elected myself as the uh, the midshipman, so I, th- I think that suitably, you know, fits my rank at this at this point. I'm not commodore or chief levels. Yeah,
0: Tony's a good friend of mine, and he's <laughs> host of his own podcast, the X Cast. And he's actually, if you have been listening to Starboard Orbit, you would have heard him a few months
1: ago talking about uh, Star Trek Destination Europe. Mm. Yeah, that was a fun event. Yeah. In the same room as the uh, the legends themselves, or most of the legends themselves, anyway, and uh, yeah, that was great.
0: Yeah, so so his his Trek credentials check out, even if he doesn't have the ranks that some of them, so, some of the other. Ones <laughs> I'm, here I'm working on, on it. the network, dude. <laughs> I'm working on
1: it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you know, uh, Tony, and I were talking about what what should we talk about this week, and. Both of our favorite era of Star Trek is the original series films era. That's, you know, from 1979 to 1991. Uh, I mean, that's incredible. They came out with six films in 12 years, okay? And if if you do the math on that, that's pretty good, especially as far as Star Trek films are concerned. Because if you look at the Kelvin timeline, right, the original Star Trek, Star Trek 09, as it has been gone on to be called, was originally supposed to come out in 2008, Okay. Christmas mm. 2008. Remember that? Mm. Remember that? Remember the advertisements and the yeah, teasers yeah. and all that? I was so excited. Oh, man. Star Trek at Christmas. Because there's something about, I don't know, I like when these big genre movies come out at Christmas because it's like the holidays and you, you, I don't know. There's just something about that. Uh, because now Lord of the Rings took it over for a while. I took it over from Star Trek Nemesis, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> uh, uh, and now now Star Wars has kind of planted its flag in December. So I was so excited when, when Star Trek 09 was going to come out in December 2008, and then it got delayed, and then, okay, well, it it, it all turned out great, because I love Star Trek Nine, and then it took, you know, them four years to come out with Into Darkness, because J.J. Abrams was busy making Super 8, which is, you know, a good film, a good modern take Mm -hmm. on E.T., as I saw it, a love letter to the Spielberg films of the 80s. You know, that's four years later, and then it took them three years to get Beyond Out, okay, so that's three movies, (laughs) and now we're looking at what... 2018 or it's got to oh, be 2019 I, at this point yeah I if think we're lucky so. so that is that is math that i had did not do before recording here <laughs> <laughs> that is 11 years of maybe four films and that come on guys crank out the outtake now i know you know back in the back in the 80s it was see that, this is what this is interesting to me back back when they made the original star trek movies every movie they treated like it was gonna be the last movie, right? Because they didn't know Star Trek: The Motion Picture, right? Star Trek: Two, The Wrath of Khan had such a definite ending. I mean, they they did some reshoots and kind of left things a little more open ended, right? Uh, Star Trek Three could have ended there. The human adventure continues, right? Uh, Star Trek Four, they get home to get a new Enterprise. Like every single Star Trek movie could have ended the franchise, right? Five had you know the Final Frontier. That, that sounds like the final movie, and then of course Star Trek Six was truly. The final movie. So they were doing it one movie at a time, and they were able to give us six movies in twelve years. Incredible. Uh, the Kelvin timeline. They're kind of doing it one movie at a time, but they, you know, it, it's the franchise era that we're in right now. So they're thinking, you know, two, three movies ahead. They're planning out all all these things, connected universes, comic books, and you know, <laughs> video yeah. games and all that. Yet they still can't give us more than a movie every three years on average, at best. So I don't know. What are your
1: thoughts on that? I think it's partly because the landscape has changed now. In the, as you say, we're in the age of the franchise. Movies cost a lot more to make these days. A lot of the principal players, as well in the Star Trek universe, you've got to remember now, are on about five, four or five different franchises. So you know, someone like Zoe Saldana is is probably booked. You know, she's down for Guardians. Avengers 3 probably, she'll be in Avatar 2, 3, 4, 5, 17, however many he's making. Ah. So you've got I think you've got a lot of the, the cast are all being spread apart, so and J.J. Abrams obviously involved in Star Wars and goodness knows what else. So I think it's, it's a reality of the world we live in that, and this is no disrespect to the original series crew, but they may have been more available on a quicker basis back then to be able to make these movies, whereas now it takes about two or three years to even set them up. And then, you know, I, I think so. I think I think it's I think it's the reality of the of the franchise era, and the fact that, that you know the the, the Calvin Tyler movies have got a cast full of stars. Really,
0: that's an excellent point. I mean, back in the '80s, Chatner was doing T.J. Hooker, and I believe that was pretty much the only regular mainstream work. I mean, of course, I think later nimoy was doing well he was doing in search of one of my favorite shows mm. <laughs> but you know he was doing plays and, and things like that as well so that's an excellent point but you know i i i frame it through that lens because uh it's hard to maintain the fandom right uh when for for the for the general public right when it's like you can there's so many franchises there's so many genre alternatives now in this modern landscape of films and entertainment really you're not you're not sitting there waiting for the next star trek movie waiting for the next breaking news you know the general public no we are as trekkies we're like oh man but who's going to be the next you know the main guest star in the next star trek movie and what's it going to be about and, and all that stuff you know we we live for that kind of news but the general public like star trek uh, at least the kelvin timeline films are not really you know, on on everybody's, you know, top of their queue or their newsfeed, you know what I'm saying? Because mm. um, you can use, oh, Star Wars, Star Wars is back, right? I mean, the the, the the rise of the Star Trek movies came pretty much as Star Wars wrapped up in 1983. So you had, you know, the next uh, four original series movies came out after that, right? So, so it had this, this a wide berth of, okay, hey, you want to see sci-fi action adventure for the whole family? Come see Star Trek, right? I mean, that, that filled that void. Uh, obviously it didn't, uh, it wasn't quite the blockbusters at Star Wars everywhere, but it had a solid audience and a very loyal fan base, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's was without saying, for Star Trek, but you know, when you have a movie coming out every other year, basically it, uh, it keeps the fandom alive, keeps them engaged and you know, you, you're like, Oh man, the next one, the next, the next one, even if they're self-contained and that's, that's what's so great. And that, let's, let's dive into the, I mean, there's not really a a term, you know, we don't have like a catchy term like the Kelvin timeline era for for these movies. It's basically the original cast movie era, right? That's that's the best way I know how to describe it. And and I think, you know, part of the reason that they're so successful and are my favorites are, you know, they're all so very different, all 6 movies, mm. right? They're not repetitive of each other. They're each very different takes. I mean, even starting with The Motion Picture, um, that's a that's a very high concept sci-fi Uh, story told in the trappings of Star Trek but you know you go on down the list and they're all they're all very different I I think that's a very much an advantage because I think a a criticism of even the very successful franchises today like the like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is every movie is pretty much the same especially the origin movies right I mean every movie is Iron Man but you know Ant-Man is Little Iron Man and Doctor (laughs) Strange is Magic Iron Man right uh, so for example, now I love Doctor Strange for example, it just came out just a few months ago but it's all the same beats it's all the same story, that kind of thing and Marvel has yet to crack the sequel, I feel, I think Captain America this is, <laughs> we're going on some tangents here, again standard over tangents is what we do uh, I think the Captain America franchise has figured out the sequel but all the other Marvel movies have yet to really figure it out in my opinion, I know there are mixed opinions about the Iron Man movies but anyway, my point is that it's hard to you know, make movies in a franchise without borrowing from themselves as we've already seen in the kelvin timeline where star trek into darkness cannibalizes a lot of things that came from you know star trek 2 and then even star trek 09 and star trek nemesis you can see the same exact themes the star trek and in the next generation movies even look at that right you can see look here's a villain with a doomsday device that it's going to go off at the end and picard has to go fight them one-on-one at the end of the movie to stop them right that's almost every next generation movie so you look back at the original series movies, and they're all very different. And I think that's that's a huge strength. And it, it celebrates the episodic nature of Star Trek. While it's the same franchise, you have so many angles. You can use these characters and these storytelling techniques that you, you get a wide berth of uh, an experience of entertainment. So what are your thoughts on that, Tony?
1: I think part of it goes back to you know what you mentioned earlier about um, how things have changed. And I think it's, you know, when these films were made in the 80s, it was it was the age of the sequel. You know, and it we now live in the age of the franchise in that you very rarely get a, a, a sequel to a movie. You get a franchise movie. So in, in those days, as you said, you know, each film can function kind of as its own beast. And, you know, there's an argument to be said that three, uh, two, three, and four in the original films are, you know, a continuing storyline. Well, they are a continuing storyline, but nobody sat down at the start of The Wrath of Khan and planned out the next two films. You know, though... The, the the idea Nick, Nick Meyer had was to uh, was to kill Spark, and then you know the rest. He's, he's famous for for not loving the idea that he came back in the next film. So it's it's not something that they used to do. They they didn't used to think two or three films ahead. And what it allows, I think, doing things that way actually gives you more freedom in many respects. Because you know if you look at the at the films at the original series films, the Wrath of Khan, Search for Spark. Voyage Home. They tell a continuing story, but they don't feel like they're, you know, unconnected. They don't feel they don't feel that they were planned originally as a three, as a trilogy. But equally, they connect up and they connect up pretty well, even though they were planned as three individual movies and at very different points. The problem some people have with the franchise these days, and it's good that Star Trek hasn't gone down that route, because it could have done. It could have become this big connecting, interconnecting franchise, and it hasn't. It's stayed the course, really, in that it's the Kelvin timeline films have got three you know, different storylines. In this case, they've just got continuing character arcs all the way through, and they, they play off certain things from the previous films. But the fran- the problem, to an extent, with franchises is that because you're thinking five films ahead... Some of these Marvel movies, they struggle to tell the film in the present day. They struggle to tell Iron Man 1 without thinking of Iron Man 3, you know, or that kind of thing. Or it's certainly become a problem now in many people's eyes. Whereas the beauty of the original Star Trek films is that you can sit down and you can watch The Voyage Home, whether you've seen The Search for Spock or The Wrath of Calm recently, and you can have a great time. You don't need – it even gives you a little recap at the start, <laughs> you know. Um they know that there is an interconnectivity. They know that there is a, a a thread running through, but they're not beholden to it. They don't have to worry that they they plant this seed in you know Wrath of Khan that will pay off in an undiscovered the undiscovered country. They don't have to do that yet. Let's let's face it: the fact that David dies in the search for Spark plays into Kirk's you know actions and his psychology in the undiscovered country beautifully. And it's something that isn't dealt with in films four or five, so they don't have to map something out completely five films ahead in order to make it part of a story later. And I think that's that's one of the great things about the original Star Trek films, in that you can sit down, as I say, and enjoy them independently as they're told individual storylines. And it's one of the reasons I love them because that and they, because because to some extent they are. They're both timeless, and they're very much of their time. And I think a lot of a lot of franchises struggle with that. Not many of them get that feeling. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And you
0: know, let's let's dive let's dive into it here. We can just kind of go down the list and talk about you know the 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 six movies of uh, of the original series cast. Now, the motion picture uh, very divisive uh in fandom you know people call it the slow motion picture the motionless (laughs) picture Uh, i know it's it's kin's favorite star trek movie i i rank it better than most people do i would say it's still better than all the next generation movies except for first contact and you know and it's better than star trek 5 we'll get into star trek 5 in a few minutes here (laughs) but uh
1: what are your (laughs) thoughts on the motion picture which camp do you fall in tony well i was born in 1982 I'm not going to go into a big, you know, litany of my uh, <laughs> of my childhood. I was born uh, in an age of No, I was born in 1982, so the, the year that Wrath of Khan came out. So I I was born after the the motion picture came out, and I didn't see it until I was in my teens. Really, I, it wasn't the first Star Trek movie that I was introduced to. I grew up watching Search for Spock, Voyage Home, Wrath of Khan, and it's a very different film from those. So when I watched it when I was a, a, a child in the 90s, it was, yeah, the slow-motion picture. It bored me to tears. It really did. I was like, oh God, this is not nearly as... Ex- where's the space battles? You know, where's the, <laughs> where's the fighting? Where's the, um, where's the, where's the humour? Which is one of the things I loved about The Voyage Home when I was a kid. But the older I've got, and presumably the more steady, slow, and <laughs> boring I've gotten pretentious <laughs> over the years i've I've come to appreciate and I, I i that's a joke I've come to appreciate the motion pictures genuinely a very underrated film i i i would i would say it's it's certainly not the best one, but I would say it's got so many things to recommend it, principally the score by Jerry goldsmith, which is my favorite score ever and I'm a huge mute film music fan I have a film music podcast, but that score is my favorite piece of film music. Ever, um, so yeah, I, I I really like I really like the motion picture, and it grows on me with age. Well, it certainly speaking of the score, it
0: certainly made its mark on Star Trek history, becoming the next generation theme, and of course mm. the theme for most of the next generation movies. I mean. When you tell people to, to hum the Star Trek theme, they probably go, oh, you know, from the original stories. Yeah. Or they go, da, yeah. da, 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 da. Yeah. And they <laughs> relate that to Next Generation, which makes sense. I mean, it was on for seven years. It had four movies, much more recent than the motion picture. So uh, the general public, the non trekkies out there again, would relate that song to Star Trek The Next Generation. But let's not forget, that's where it all started in 1979. And... Um, yeah, I mean, the, the motion picture... I mean, you can talk... People have, and we will, we, and we will again <laughs> talk for hours about the motion picture, I'm sure, here on, on the network, but uh, it's important to remember that this is the first Star Trek in 10 years. You know, you got to contextualize things. I know uh, my parents are both Trekkies. Is one of the first things they did together was go see Star Trek The Motion Picture, so you know, and that, was a, that was a huge thing of the time, like, oh man, they're making a Star Trek movie. I mean, imagine... Uh, this is a much greater skill, right? But imagine... Uh, or remember how excited everyone was about the serenity movie you know when firefly mm. was canceled right but it's it's that times like a thousand yeah <laughs> you know because it's like this this cult this cult show which you thought was gone which everybody loved but it's coming back as a movie that's huge right uh and unlike serenity the motion picture did you know pretty well at the box office <laughs> uh so that that ensured uh, even though the critical reception was not what everyone had wanted uh the financial uh financials were huge and which allowed us to get more Star Trek movies on a lesser scale, of course, but still more Star Trek movies. Um, and you know the uniforms, right? We got to talk about the uniform. I think I think that's the one thing people talk about more than anything is the uniforms. I love Captain Kirk's admiral uniform. I think the two tone works really well, and it's not a onesie like a lot of the other <laughs> like a lot of the other <laughs> costumes are. Uh, but I, I also like the variety. You know, I mean they had a real budget on this movie, and they're not wearing the same shirt all day long. I mean I'm not the the timeline of motion pictures. What just like. A handful of days mm. and th- you know they sure change costumes a lot don't they like like Kirk Kirk has his Admiral uniform he has his captain he has his blue captain uniform he has his short sleeve like white uniform you know Bones has disco bones he has the the low v neck collared one he's got the white sweater with the purple to uh, purple with the t- teal qua uh, can't talk the t- the uh, <laughs> turquoise turtleneck under there right it's like man you guys are like it, do you change this clothes that often on your on your 12-hour shift you know i don't know what it, what it is but you know they were showing off the the costumes and i actually other than the onesies i actually like most of the costumes in the motion picture i know that's like people are like what are you talking about this is terrible but <laughs> I, I don't mind them i think they're very very futuristic i know they're very 70s people say they're very like logan's run and
1: i think that i think they sit between the two styles that Star Trek was was balancing with this film, you know, it was it was, it it wasn't as colourful and as camp and as 60s as the as the original series, but it wasn't at the point that you know, and and Nick Meyer has a heavy hand in this, heavier than Roddenberry really, in making the the Star Trek universe much more naval and militaristic in many many respects, making Starfleet much more along that route at which point the uniforms changed and they became a lot different. But it, I think it's kind of the bridge between the two. It still has that level of, you know, Roddenberry utopia about it, and which he, which he then brought back, really, with some of the early next-generation uniforms, you know, with their very loose kind of, you know, at times, uh, you know, it, it just very relaxed in, in some respects uniforms, you know, futuristic uniforms. But I think it's, it's still, you know, in the middle of it. I like them. I, th- I, th- I think they work well. I think they work well, and I think they fit the aesthetic of a film which is more conceptual than about story, really. And, and that, that's the thing with the motion picture, and that's one of the things I like about it more as time goes on, in that there is a story to be told, but it's much more about the big concepts and ideas. And, you know, to an extent, and I wrote an article about this uh, not so long back for Film Inquiry, but I think to an extent the motion picture is the most Star Trek film of all of them, in 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 some ways. It it's it, I think it distills the purest idea of the you know, the human adventure as it as it describes itself. Right, exploring the human condition. Yeah. Yes, yes, And and going out and exploring the unknown. And Vija is the unknown. And that's one of the things I love about it.
0: That's an excellent point, because for for a franchise there were its catchphrases to boldly go to seek out new life and new civilizations there's not a lot of that going on yeah. <laughs> in the Star Trek <laughs> movies really you know, it's about movies. just fighting a villain and stopping a device yeah. and all that a time travel right yeah. <laughs> those are all great but uh but yeah true is to the uh to the mission statement of Star Trek the motion picture and, and you know and I forget because ugh, I've uh I pretty much only watch the director's edition now but uh other than you know, unfortunately it's not in HD let's say there's two things I want where it's all said
1: and done in this world, Tony,
0: it's D. Space Nine in HD. Oh yeah, it's Star Trek: The Motion Picture Director's yeah.
1: Edition in HD. Same, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I, I, I want Blu-ray. I want Blu-ray DS Nine. Yeah, and HD, HD Motion Picture because it's a beautiful film. It's a beautiful film. It's shot. It's got some amazing cinematography. You know, it, it's it, it's incredible. You know, the sequences and the, and the music that goes along with this is some of my favorite from the from the score. But the sequence where Spock is going through. Vijay is is phenomenal. I mean, it, it, to an extent, it's some of it is dated, but a lot of it hasn't. It still has that pure alien strangeness about it, and that sense that you're going, you are going through something that is truly unknown. I, I know I, I love that and there,
0: and there's a lot of scope to that too. I mean it's just it, it's just this whole other world because you, you, your imagination just gets so fired up because you see like the machine planet down there, you see these orbs and mm. spots like there's whole galaxies in here and you're like wow, that's yeah. that's incredible just to wrap your brain around. But I, I, I must say if there's one scene that just epitomizes this movie it is when Spock is when Spock is going into the uh, the V'ger orifice, as he describes it. Uh, that's that, that's how I learned what that term I was like orifice. Star Trek teaches you so many things, so much vocabulary, right? But he's in this thruster suit and he's moving like a centimeter at a time. It's like shh shh, shh it's like if if anything. If anything, epitomizes this film and the pace of this film (laughs) is this scene. Yeah.
1: He's literally moving so (laughs) slow. (laughs) It's snail Spock, yeah. Moving through (laughs) a a (laughs) galaxy-spanning organism. (laughs) Really, yeah in slow motion oh man
0: yeah uh but yeah i my, my whole my point about the uh, director's uh cut versus the theatrical cut is i forget which like scenes are in which and all that but but one of the greatest lines uh in the film i believe and i do i don't know if it's, uh, it's in the theatrical cut or not uh, i know it's in the director's cut but uh when spock says it knows only that it needs but like so many of us it does not know what I'm like oh man that's so deep Right, that's like that speaks to the human condition, the human adventure. Like, why are we here? You know, what do I, you know, what do I need? I'm incomplete. What, what can I find that completes me? And that's Viser's journey, right? It's it's finding that completion at the end of the movie. So it's very satisfying, self-contained film, which is kind of our point here. If Star Trek ended with a motion picture, you wouldn't feel like, oh man, well that there was no like to be continued. It didn't get fulfilled at the end, right? The human adventure continues or is just beginning as the tagline of the motion picture, and you can just imagine the Star Trek crew going boldly, you know, forever, really, and that's what's great. It's like the end of uh, the next generation, in some degree, right? They're playing poker, you know? Sky's the limit. You pan out. Enterprise flies off. And you're like, wow, that, that's a very appropriate ending for these characters. That'd be great. So so Star Trek 2, right? That's the big one. That's the next oh, yeah. one. Uh, the Wrath and Khan. I mean, the, what? there's really not... We can't say anything that hasn't been said about the Wrath and Khan already. It's great. We love it. think taking... A sequel to an episode I think was genius. Harv Bennett sat down and watched them all as the story goes, and uh, zeroed in on Spacey to, as one worthy of a sequel. Uh, Ricardo Montalban, obviously incredible actor, and just they they really lucked out getting him in the '60s and getting him back in the '80s, right? Because he
1: makes the movie. Oh yeah, he, he does. He does, and he, he's with you know with his incredibly you know buff torso. You know you, you wouldn't you wouldn't think he's the age he is in many respects, and and this this film I genuinely think is one of the greatest science fiction films ever made, let alone Star Trek I think it's it's perfect it, it, it's as close to a perfect science fiction film I think as you can find really because it, everything about this film works from the set design from the scripting to the themes to the characterization you know, the story it, the, the you know even the effects you know which are, are dated to an extent now but everything about it just it transforms the Star Trek universe in a way that everything since has kind of followed on from it, really. It, to an extent the Calvin films have gone back to the aesthetic of the sixties. Which is which is understandable. But the entire prime universe, as as some people call it, took a, a cue from the Wrath of Khan, took a cue from the tone, from the scope, from the idea of what Starfleet was and what and, you know, what the character of Kirk was in this. And he's much more of a you know, very human figure in this. In, in the motion picture, Kirk is is much more, in, to some extent, standoffish in in some ways. Which which is, you could say that same about the film. In this, he's a he's a man grappling with his mortality at the at the point where he's losing his he's losing his his purpose. And and this whole film is about rebirth in the face of death. And of course, obviously, you have Spock dying at the end, which was. Equivalent in so, to some extent of, of of Vader and Luke, you know, it's that it's that level of shock, and it would have been at, at that point. Uh, it, every everything about this is 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 wonderful, and it, it is it is my favourite Star Trek. Uh, even though Star Trek is full of brilliance and it, all across the board in many respects, but I don't think anything has ever topped the Wrath of Khan for me. I love it to pieces. And it was so successful, I mean, uh, it's a blueprint for almost uh, the majority
0: of, you know, the next generation movies and the Kelvin timeline movies moving forward. Uh, and they're, you know, uh, it's like, yes, I know it worked there, but that doesn't mean you have to do it every time, which is what we're talking about here, right? I mean, if you look at the rest of the original series movies, they didn't, they didn't like retread the on no. Everything else was new. So mm. credit to them for just like, hey, that, that was that story. Now let's tell the next story. And, you know, Star Trek Two again, it works as a completely self-contained thing. Like, just open-ended enough to, to make you want sequels, but it, it could have ended there. Kirk has his sense of rebirth, his, his new purpose. He has a new family. Even though he's lost his best friend, uh, he's, you know, maybe going to rekindle something with an old love, and he definitely has a, has a son now. So, you know, he, he's lost some of his, his uh, career family, but reconnected with his real family, which is... A theme that can gets completely lost once you keep watching the movies because obviously Carol Marcus is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> Man, Carol Marcus, what a bad rap, Right, she gets in one movie
1: and disappears in two different timelines. Come on, guys, <laughs> she's a good character. Let's keep yeah. her around next time. It is, uh, it is she strange. shows up. She may come back yet in the uh, in the Calvin timeline. You never know. She might come back.
0: But yeah, you, you know, I'm sure they don't know either. So we'll, well, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see. I'll
1: see. If it was great. Uh, British accent at all? I'm sure that didn't bother you, but <laughs> <laughs> mm, I've got my issues there. But <laughs> we'll skip over that. But uh, but the, the the Wrath of Khan, yeah, it, it would have been very easy to just you know replicate that again. And I think one of the reasons that they're all different is the fact that they all have different creative forces involved. You know, I mean, obviously people like you know Harve Bennett are around for several of the films, and Roddenberry was in the background. But I think that there was an element of each director brought their own. Taken it, you know Robert Wise with the motion picture, and Roddenberry was more involved in that one, obviously. And then Nick Mayer has his own very specific idea of what the Star Trek story and universe is. And he, you know, he, if you listen to the um, the commentaries he does on the on the Blu-ray on the various Blu-rays, you know he's such a laid-back. He's not re- he's not a Trekkie in in some respects. He's much more of a he's a he's a filmmaker first, and he, he brings to Star Trek his own view and his aesthetic based on the whole idea of it being very hornblower. You know, esque. Well, as, he's, as he said, he has right sense
0: of reverence for the franchise,
1: which is exactly what we needed at that time. He has that distance but reverence for it, which I think is one of the reasons he's, he made two of the greatest films because I think sometimes, and we'll get to this, but as proven by The Final Frontier, when you are so involved, you make something that is a little bit indulgent, whereas Mayer made two films... And hopefully, we'll find he brings this same aesthetic with what he's done with Discovery soon. But he's he brings that level of distance, which I think allows him to to step back away from the fan service and create something that's that's truly interesting. Leonard Nimoy does similar, actually, even though he's involved so heavily. You know, when he comes in and directs the Search for Spock and um, uh, the Voyage Home, he makes two very different films. You know, the Search for Spock is much more of a a classic adventure romp in many ways, and then The Voyage Home is is, is, is more of a light-hearted comedy, drama. But he may, he, he's he got his own lighter sense of... I think if, if any of the films go, really go back to the 60s and update them, it's those two. And I think the different creatives create a different level and, and style for each film, really.
0: I agree with what you're saying. I I disagree with your conclusion, though. I would actually say Star Trek Five is the most, like, original series episode of any of the first 6 movies. You know, but, but 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 we'll we'll put a pin in that. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll come back to that. What is your favorite Star Trek uniform? Because the uniforms introduced in the Wrath of moving forward here are my favorite
1: of the whole franchise. What about you, Tony? Yeah, I I think so. I think I love the, you know, the um the fact that they they button up and then you can undo them when things get tough and you can have that they they are they are a proper naval tradition uniform and I I've, I do like the um uh, the later DS nine into next generation film uniforms because there's a similarity in some respects I think in some ways but I like those the but, the layers the colours yeah yeah, definitely. yeah um but no I don't think they ever quite topped what was yeah the, the, these these ones that were brought in here they're, they're the most for me they're the most iconic, but I know they're not the most iconic in general. The most iconic are the 60s, you know, different coloured, very basic ones. But for me, growing up with these movies, I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up with the original series. You know, I didn't watch the original series fully until I was an adult. I didn't even watch them as a kid because they didn't put them on as much in the UK. They, they put on The Next Generation far more. I watched far more of The Next Generation and DS9 growing up as, as, as a kid and but it, so the original crew is the movies to me first time i think of them as we've been talking about it's the movies so the look of the movies and the look of how they they dress in these movies is that and that's what stays with me well we have similar taste in clothes tony because
0: my, my favorite two are of course this one and the first contact onwards uniforms yeah. from uh next generation movies in Deep Space nine so definitely and they have a lot of that they truly look like uniforms you know, it's like, hey, look, everyone looks kind of the same. You have a little bit of color splash that, that, and some, and some uh, ranking pips that signify a difference. But other than that, you don't have people running around in like three or four different colors, <laughs> you know, primary yeah. colors on the, uh, on the ship, which gets a little bit of a, a, a color overload, if you will. But, uh, but anyway, so yeah, so we're done with talking about clothes and uniforms now because. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, motion picture was a big one, of course. Rathicon introduced uh, the ones that Starfleet apparently used for, like, 80 years. But, hey, so they, they were obviously a big fan of Starfleet Command. We're like, yeah. yeah, you know what? Don't change the costumes. These are great. <laughs> the costumes, the uniforms, those are great. <laughs> and yeah. again, you know, a lot of the visual continuity... As you know, as Ken and I have been, have been going back and talking about the origins of Star Trek and a lot of our standard orbit discussions here, uh, a lot of the continuity is just based off budget, right? They're like, okay, we got to reuse this, we got to reuse that, we got to redress this set. We still have this model lying around. Let's turn it upside down and use it. But because of that, it adds a sense of authenticity to the world. Where you know, in the real world, you know, stuff looks pretty much the same. As what we talked about, when we talked about the, the uh, Enterprise ships, like a ship from World War II looks pretty much like a ship from today, right, with with minor tweaks and whatnot, and and so so that kind of authenticity, it's just, it's awesome, because when you, when, okay, you look at, like, um, the Star Wars prequels, right, you get a blank slate and a blank check from George Lucas, everything looks radically different, right, and it doesn't really fit in the same continuity as the original Star Wars trilogy, and I understand it's, like, you know, 30 years before and all that, but still, it's really the the technology, the mm. the visual style, like they don't mesh very well. No, uh, again, Nicholas Meyer, right? Artistry thrives on constraint. So when you have a, limited budgets and you know limited time and limited resources, uh, it just it adds to the, the tapestry of it all. And you know, I I like that's a wrinkle of Star Trek I really enjoyed over the fifty year history, looking at like why certain things stayed around and and the visual language and all that stayed the same which you know because they just didn't have that much money <laughs> yeah yeah so you know star trek 2 a classic right but star trek 3 is my favorite of the original series movies i'm not sure why this became the case when i was a kid though i watched it more than any of them i think star trek 2 honestly is just a little too scary for me mm. uh because definitely uh the city Alpha five eel scene freaked me out every time I went and I hid behind the couch when this came on. Because it's it's really intense. Yeah. That and the end of conspiracy, the episode of mm. Next Generation where they uh Picard and Riker blow up Remick. Yeah. <laughs> like literally yeah. his head explodes. Style. Like, that is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are the two most like gruesome, like I can't watch this uh scenes in star trek history for me especially as a young impressionable child as i was so that's probably why i didn't revisit wrath of khan as, as much you know and then the end is sad with spock dying obviously and but star trek 3 i i really do enjoy it more than any of them because everyone's working as a team everyone has a role to play and most of the other movies um especially the first two like you had kirk spock to a lesser degree mccoy and that was like it everybody else was a glorified extra much like it was in the original series but as time went on, they realized, you know what? We got to we gotta give these guys, these actors, and these characters their due. In Star Trek three, everybody gets, you know, even if it's just a scene, like Uhura, right? And the whole Mr. Adventure scene with the phaser and the transporter room. <laughs> even if it's something like that, they get a little moment, you yeah. know? And Star Trek three is so fun, right? And uh, it's fun, but it's dark at the same time. I mean, it's not fun like Star Trek 4, but, you know, Kirk's being kind of nonchalant about things. And even though they're it's a resurrection adventure <laughs> to go resurrect Spock, yeah. it's an adventure nonetheless. They're not necessarily out to go fight some Doomsday device. They're out to go resurrect Spock. And on the side, there's a whole Klingon subplot going on, and they intersect when they get to Genesis. But it's not like, you know, it's not the whole standard, here's the villain. He has this device. We must stop it because it will destroy the universe, right? The stakes are large, but they're also very personal in Star Trek 3. Yeah. And my favorite scene of, of all of Star Trek movies is stealing the Enterprise. Mm, that's so in good. Star Trek III. The score, I mean, you talk about the score. Yeah. Right? I mean, Jerry Goldsmith has great scores, but man, I might like James Horner's scores even better yeah. Uh, for two and three just because it, it just, it, it's crazy that you have such an iconic, amazing score from Jerry Goldsmith. And then the next couple of films, you have just. An equally amazing score from James Horner. I mean, it's incredible. And and he was no one back then. Like, they plucked him, Nicholas Meyer plucked him from, you know, virtual obscurity. I mean, he had done, he had a few things under his belt. But you go from a, a, a cinematic legend like Goldsmith to Horner, who then became a cinematic legend in his own right as years went on. Uh, amazing. But yeah, the music, everything comes together. The model work, you know, uh, the Enterprise, the Excelsior. I love it. I just love it when you can just see. Kirk's determination on his face when the Excelsior captain, who's a jerk, by the way. Yeah, he is. (laughs) Very small, very small part, but so effective. You immediately do not like that guy. I don't know if he's got like a nail file or what that thing is, he's carrying around with him. He's just like this guy's a jerk. I don't like him. He's like, Kirk, you do this, you never sit in the captain's chair again. And Kirk's just, you see the determination on his face. Yeah. He's like, warp speed. And then it probably takes off. You're like, yeah! You yeah. know, that really gets you like, yeah, stick it to him, Kirk. It's true. Anyway, I love that scene. I love this movie. I think Christopher Lloyd's a great villain. Uh, the greater prey, all that stuff. All the things that we've talked about so many times on Standard Orbit that in- influenced Star Trek for years to come in this movie. And then and then at the end, right, uh, this is really the only time in the movies you get to see a classic Kirk fight.
1: You know, Kirk and Krug on, the, on Genesis planet fighting each other, right? And I think this is what I mean about it feeling a lot more like the 60s TV show. I think th- this is this is one of the things about uh, the Search for Spock and we've got something in common that because this was the first one I saw when I was a kid actually. And and that's why even though I th- Wrath of Khan is my favorite, this was one of the first this was the first Star Trek movie I ever I ever watched and I loved it as a child because it has a real mix of tones. And like you said, it's very very human and it, and it has a I mean, it has loads of things going on in it as well. You know, you're not only rescuing Spark, but you've got the Enterprise being destroyed. You've got Kirk and the crew becoming renegades. You've got the Klingons. You've got this biblical, uh, you know, allegory with Genesis and the rebirth of of Spark. You've got the Vulcans at the end. You've got, it's it's packed full of things, of incident. And at, at the heart of it, you have this crew going off book to rescue someone they love and it is a really, it is the, you know, the, the motion picture talks about the human adventure. This is the human adventure, really. This is what it's about. This is this crew, this unit, this family that Kirk has re- rediscovered at the end of Wrath of Khan coming together to bring their boy home, basically. And, you know, to an extent, I can understand the cop-out of, you know, Spock and the argument that it's a cop-out and that they, they've robbed a franchise in cinema of one of the most devastating, you know, Endings ever, but it doesn't rob anything from Wrath of Khan for me. This, you know, the, the 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 impact of Spock dying at the end of that movie doesn't feel erased by the fact he comes back. It, it, and, it and it's rare that happens. You know, in a lot of other franchises, that would that would have felt like a cheat, but in Star Trek, it feels right. And I think that's one of the reasons. Another reason why Search for Spark is great in many respects. And I, I agree. I, I really like it. I really like it.
0: Well, guys like us have a different perspective, Tony, because we grew up and they were just all three VHS tapes around yeah. the shelf, right? You know, <laughs> two, three, four, watch them all it's together. True. That was like, oh well, yeah, Spock comes back. But I mean, it's it's it, you try to place yourself back then, like, really, they're gonna bring Spock back? They're doing that? Yeah. Like, really? Like, I I could totally see why like, older fans are still kind of like, ah, oh, they should have just let it be. Uh, but you know, but they went for broke with these movies, and that's what we're talking about here, like. Back then like they were doing it one movie at a time. They were doing like, you know what? We're not going to save anything for three movies down the line. We're going to we're going to blow up the Enterprise. We're going to resurrect Spock, we're going to kill Kirk's son. I'm like, these, these are big things. Yeah, if you were planning out methodically, yeah. If you were planning out a franchise like in a boardroom like they do now, you know, with a big chart and all that, they wouldn't do any of this. No, stuff. They would be like, "Oh, we need to save that for yeah. the, the next one." Like really <laughs> yeah. no. Like put it all on the screen here. And you know, uh, man, I the the scene where, where David dies Kirk's reaction that might that might be Shatner's best acting moment. Yeah, that scene in Star Trek.
1: is one of the darkest moments in Star Trek as well. I mean, it, it's surprising, in fact, that in a film that is, like I said, much more tipped on the action adventure axis, and he's not light and fluffy like the, you know the voyage home in many respects is. But you know, it's lighter. It's got it's not got that heft and that darkness that the Wrath of Khan has. But then you get this utter gut punch. You know, I mean, quite literally, I suppose for David. But it's it's a <laughs> her- it's a real shocker and you know when when Kirk just falls back in his chair and he goes you killed my son we feel it we're that kind of what that doesn't happen that you know it's it's amazing it's a really powerful moment and it's like you said yeah it's beautifully acted by Shatna because he just gets that complete shock and grief and yeah it's it's amazing and it it takes guts to put something like that in it really does David is dead yeah which by the way Robin Curtis, I prefer to Kirstie Alley. What about you? Uh, I don't know. I think I like. <laughs> I think I like Kirsty. I do. I do. I think so. Yeah. I think. I think I would have. I, I, taking nothing away from Robin Curtis, because I think what she brings to Savick is a much, much a deeper level of humanity. Actually, that fits this film. I think Robin Curtis oddly fits this film better than Kirsty Alley would have. But then equally, I don't know if Robin Curtis would have fitted Savick in Wrath of Khan. So, in a way, I, quite, I like them both. I want to cop out. That's a cop out answer.
0: <laughs> I mean, I do not like recasting at all. But, you know, I think I grew up, again, watching three more than any of them. And then since Robin Curtis is Savick in four as well, that kind of adds an extra bit of legitimacy to her, you know. Uh, but, again, if you're watching it back in the 80s and you're like, well, they, they recast Savick. Like, she was one of the best parts of Star Trek 2, this new exciting character. And now we're... Why don't we get this actress back? Like, I can understand why people are like... they. Uh, Robin Curtis already had the card stacked against her, you know? Yeah. And, of course, Nimoy had a very different approach. Like, hey, you're, you're pure Vulcan in Star Trek two uh, in the script. You know, as I'm sure all the Trekkies know, Savik is supposed to be half Romulan and that was something that got deleted. Like, there's that there's actual footage somewhere out there on YouTube I've seen it of the deleted scene where Kirk and Spock are talking about how Savik is half Romulan. So that informed Christy Alley's performance but then when you drop that you're like, she's just a Vulcan. Why is she crying and acting angry? So anyway, lots of factors. That, that's just always one of those great Star Trek questions I like to ask everybody. So, so Who's your favorite Savage? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so that's Star Trek three. Again, they resurrect Spock. The, the family is united, right? Uh, we get that great scene at the end where they're all hugging on, on Mount Saleh. And the, the adventure continues is what we get. And again, the promise of more adventures, theoretically, hypothetically, in the future, right? But you don't have to see them, right? You assume that, like, look, they might get in trouble for all this, but the important thing is they're back together and they have their friend back. And that was the whole point of the movie.
1: So Star Trek could have ended there as well. Could have ended. I guess it's the, it's the equivalent i suppose of, of james bond will return isn't it it's that it's that same level of there will be more we're doing more but we don't you know we haven't planned it out yet just the adventure will continue so it, it's it, when you look at it like that it's interesting and of course we get star trek four the voyage home uh complete departure from you know
0: the death and life and death of the last two movies as Harve bennett has described it they wanted just to lighten it up a little bit and uh, who better to bring in Nicholas Meyer again, right? The guy who wrote, well, you know, Ghost wrote *Rathacon* and directed it. The creative force behind *Rathacon* comes in and writes *Star Trek IV* with Harve Bennett. Uh, Harve Bennett wrote all the 23rd century scenes, and Har- uh, Nicholas Meyer wrote the 20th century scenes, and his comedy really comes through. And th- what a- mm. this movie is hilarious. Yeah, like this should not work. This should not work. Like whenever they do, <laughs> like when a, when a franchise does, like let's do a funny one, or even a TV
1: show, like let's do a funny episode. It usually does, unless hey, unless the X Files, for example, well, does it very well. It's funny. It's funny you should say that, Zach, because this is the equivalent of. Taking, and anyone who watches the X Files will know this reference, but this is the equivalent of taking a Darren Morgan episode and making it an X Files movie, basically yeah Now how would that <laughs> <Exactly>. ever work <laughs> but it does for star trek it's 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 brilliant
0: because there's a certain expectation by people who aren't you know uber fans of what star trek or the x-files is and then you show them something like that like whoa what is this uh but this voyage home this totally worked it, it connected with the the non Trekky audience in a huge way and it's everyone still knows quote-unquote the one with the whales yeah. right everyone knows it and uh and it's hilarious like the spock using profanity like i, I love he's the hell I, I can't. But he gets out of the pool, <laughs> and, she, and uh, Jillian Taylor's like, "What are you in there talking to my whales?" And he's like, "They like you very much, but they are not the hell your whales." <laughs> it's just the, complete, the colorful metaphors, I love it, uh, and it, it holds up so well. I, I think, and you said it best earlier, and you said they're timeless, but they are so of their time because this movie is so 80s, and it embraces the fact that it's the 80s. Uh, but it the comedy is so timeless because you know these characters and you love these characters and it's not just comedy for comedy's sake like it's playing into how these characters would truly react like Scotty and the computer yeah. right so funny hello computer <laughs> like everybody does that like at the computer lab in school you pick up the mouse you talk to the computer like ah ha, ha look I'm Scotty right it's it's great and uh
1: this it, the movie shouldn't work but it totally does it's remarkable really and i think i think they get what you got to the point there really in that yeah, okay. The the 80s aesthetics of this, you know, 80s San Francisco is brilliantly 80s now. You know, with the the jazz, the sax on the on you know, on the uh, on the soundtrack and uh you know, the perm hairdos and you know the the punk guy who is on the bus and it it's I mean it's wonderful to look back. It is like a little time capsule. But the the fact that they're from the future and they're from a fictional future is Part of the and, and that being part of the joke in that they're completely out of out of time and they are you know, they're making jokes that can that you, you could you could port them into this time and they could make the same kind of jokes in a way it's they're not jokes about the eighties they're not jokes that are time specific the comedy is about their interactions with that time. It's about their confusion about that time. And the fact that all the things we take for granted and, you know, the basics are still there. The fact we use money and the fact that we, you know, we have newspapers, you know, in in things, the the technology's changed, but the thing, the the essence is the same. They are completely baffled. by What does it mean? Exact change. Exact change. (laughs) Exactly. You know, we still have exact change and it's, you you can still laugh at these jokes because they still apply in a world that's 30 years later. Uh, and, that's the that's the beauty of it and the and the fact that it's just such a sweet movie it's it's got such and it's got such a really great message as well in that it is all about conservation and environmentalism and yeah okay it's it's a little on the nose about it i guess and and, you know leonard nimoy intentionally wanted the film to be about this you know he he made no bones about that he wanted to make a film warning about the dangers of you know conservationism but you know, and and killing the the, the uh, our, our nature and natural species, but I think that it's just such a warm movie, and it's such a a kind movie, and a movie with such a good message and a good heart that even if even though it's bonkers, because <laughs> it really is crazy, it's it's one of those things that I think you'd have to be quite hard of heart not to take some joy in it, and it for that much as the wrath of khan is the best star trek movie and i love it i kind of think the voyage home is my favorite for this for the fact that i can put it on and every single time i will laugh i will smile i will i i just i can it's just like a blanket and yeah it's a beautiful film
0: <laughs> well yeah same for me like when you rank the star trek movies like i if i could put 2 3 and 4 on the same space I would. Like 2, 3 and 4, this trilogy, that the Genesis trilogy it has become to known uh well, become to known as uh, uh, that's my favorite of anything Star Trek. Like that is Star Trek to me, these three movies here. And then Star Trek 6 is like a nice epilogue to this uh due to all the thematic connections and you know behind the scenes connections as well. And no villain in Star Trek 4, no real violence of any kind. You know, I mean that that shows you that you don't have to do the cliché uh, blueprint from that well, that's become cliche from the Wrath of Khan for every movie, right? I mean, again, they're trying, they're they they're trying new things, they're doing risky things because Leonard Nimoy, above all, he's an, he was an artist, right? And he wanted to try different things. Artists get tired of doing the same thing over and over and over. That's why when he came back to Star Trek, he always wanted to make sure there was something new for his character and for the story. Because if he's just showing up for a quick paycheck, you know, then what? It's not worth his time, and it's a disservice to Star Trek and to his character. So, well, yeah, all credit to these guys for Star Trek. For now, Star Trek Five, talking about taking a risk. <laughs> <laughs> another another film without a true villain? Because Cybok, yes, he's an antagonist, but yeah. he has no violent intentions, no. you know? So I think Cybok is actually a fascinating character. I like that he has a different agenda, and that's why I feel like Star Trek Five, as we referenced earlier, is the most like an original series show. A zealot takes over the Enterprise and takes him to the center of the universe to meet God. I mean, that's yeah that's pretty much like a, a, a wacky third season TOS episode, right? <laughs> is, I guess, or an episode yeah. of the animated series where they do go to the yeah. center of the universe. Center of the galaxy here. I know, before you correct me, everyone, I know they go to the center of the galaxy, <laughs> not the universe. This is a polarizing <laughs> film. I like it more than most people seem to. I, yes, the special effects are bad, okay? I, I'll give you that. And it's not as good as all the other TOS movies. But still, it's a fun Star Trek movie. Because it comes down to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, their interactions—they are the heart of this movie. This has the best Kirk, Spock, and McCoy movies of uh, moments of all yeah. the movies. Uh, by this point, they've been playing the characters for almost 25 years, Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly are just old friends, and and it's so natural to them, and I love watching them in this movie, I love them on shore leave, like, I love seeing, you know, it's similar to the fish out of water like Star Trek IV, just out off the ship doing things, you know, Kirk climbing, you know, (laughs) Spock having to save him, It's, it's just funny, and McCoy just, like, freaking out about it, like, that is their relationship in a nutshell, right, and that continues on through the whole movie, so, I like it more than most. I understand why people don't. Where do you stand on Star Trek Five? Uh,
1: well, I, I, I can't disagree with what you've said there. I think the interaction between those three is, is great, and that they are their interactions are what keep this going in many respects. I think that it's it's got it's it's got some merit. I mean, again, it's got a great score by Jerry Goldsmith. Another not as good as the motion picture, but it's got some beautiful um, you know tracks in it and some beautiful moments in terms of the music i agree that Cybok is is a fascinating character he, he is a controversial character for the fact of the you know the lineage connection to spock which i think to some extent is apocryphal isn't it or i think a lot of people consider it a little bit apocryphal um but i mean i, I wish it he'd have been played by sean connery as well which I, I believe they were going after for the role i think the planet shockari uh, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so I think that... Uh, Col- Although, that would have been too distracting, though, well, I-, I think. Well, I-, I guess it would, but I think he would have brought a real... I mean, Lawrence Lookabill was good, don't get me wrong, but I think Connery would have really brought A, some star power and also a real level of mysticism to this. But, you know, as usual, Connery doesn't do roles he doesn't understand. Like that's why he turned Gandalf down. Things things that are mystical <laughs> just confuse the hell out of him. But he's like, what the hell is all I, this? I sh-? didn't understand yeah, it. Gandalf for great What does it mean? He wouldn't he wouldn't have got it all. But um fly you fools. <laughs> but I think I think he, uh, he, he he would he would have brought something else to Cybak. Cybak is he's interesting because like you said he's a zealot. And I think what I love about, I do love this about Final Frontier, even though I don't like the whole film as a as a whole. And I think it's probably the weakest of all six. Well, it is the weakest, the weakest oh, yeah. of all six. But I think what I like about it is the whole idea of the pain aspect and relieving someone of their pain and taking that away. And and that great moment when Kirk says, "No, you know, I, I need my pain. You know, my pain is what makes me who I am. It's what makes me human. You know when." Bones has it taken away and he's a different man you know he has that it is that level of it applies a level of you know as in magic circles glamour you know when you take away that pain it's almost like they become his acolytes they become this you know this empty vessel but Kirk recognises that he needs it he needs that pain and I think I I love that mystical element to it there is the final frontier and ultimately I know God turns out to be you know a big con you know what does God need with a starship all that stuff.
0: So 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 quotable, right? Yeah, it's a great line.
1: It's a great line, definitely. It 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 has a level of mysticism to it, which is rare for the Star Trek universe. But then, is it? Because to an extent, if you think about it, quite a lot of this, these original Star Trek movies have certain biblical or mystical elements to them. You know, certainly the whole Genesis idea is. You know, it, it, it's it's a parable in many in many respects, and this is this is a for a film that is all about science. In many respects, *The Final Frontier* is, is a quite a religious movie, and has a lot of religious undertones going through it, and it's, it's fascinating in that respect. But I just think the, I think Shatner's, Shatner's lack of directorial ability gets in the way uh, to an extent, and I think, uh, yeah, I think it's just got its problems. It's a bit creaky, but the, the ideas are there. They just it just doesn't all come together. Yeah, the execution is lacking, but the
0: conceptually, I think it's pretty strong. And, of course, there were lots of the writer strikes and budget cuts and all kinds of, you know, there literally is a book they wrote about this, about the behind-the-scenes making of Star Trek V. So, interesting concepts that, that could have made for a stronger film. Although, yeah, to your point there about the whole pain scene, that, that's, that's one of the best scenes in Star Trek, you know, with McCoy yeah. and his father... And then you know there are a couple of quotes in Star Trek that are like life lessons that like I take with my I I take with me and hold with me every day. One one would be in Tapestry where at the end where Picard's talking about how you know if you go back and you start changing things, it unravels the tapestry of your life. You know, and things have to be the way they had to be. And then also here in Star Trek Five where Crook's like. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. You know that's something. It's the things we carry with us. It's the things that make us who we are. Like that's great. That is deep character stuff, and that is that is the human condition. That is what Star Trek is doing. It's we have this crazy fantasy story going on, but through you know you focus it down, it's talking about pain and loss and living with that pain, and 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 that's part of life. And anyway, heavy stuff for a movie that people just write off as oh yeah, the one shot and directed that was stupid. Yeah, and that's unfair. So that's five, and you know, after five, they they had uh there was some indecision about where to go. You know, they even talked about they even talked about rebooting everything. You know, as they did now, Harv Bennett's classic Star Trek: The Academy Years and movie and all that with a uh, young like Ethan Hawke and John Cusack, and the, these were these were uh, suggested actors to take over for Shatner and Nimoy, but instead, you know, uh, Nimoy and Meyer got together and uh, came up with the Undiscovered Country, Star Trek Six, which. Is also in contention for one of the best Star Trek movies. Yeah. As well. Now, this is actually Star Trek Six. I don't remember. I don't remember. The, I don't remember the whole thing. This is the first movie I remember seeing at the theater. Yep. same. Uh, but I only remember. <laughs> the, really? Okay. Yep. same. Now, do you Do you remember the whole thing? Because all I remember is the end credits. Like I I just remember like my dad like picking me up and like watching all the signatures at the end and then we left. At at the end of the credits, and that's what I remember. For I don't know if I fell asleep, you know, I was,
1: I was a small kid at the time, <laughs> so
0: I don't know. But this is the first film I remember seeing in the theater. So, uh, and then I remember when it was like first broadcast on TV; it was a big deal. And the the VHS had the 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 special home video version with a few extra <laughs> minutes. It had uh, had Odo, General Odo, in there. Rene Adjovinwa yeah. was in there as a, as a Colonel uh, Colonel West. So, um, but anyway, all, all the all the personal endos aside, this is a great film right and it's yeah. it's rightly up there with with 2 3 and 4 as as the best star trek movies tony what about you what do you think
1: oh completely yeah i mean again the fact that i saw it in the at the cinema for the first time uh, the first star trek movie i ever saw does color that to an extent you know i do i remember more of it than you i mean i was 9 at the time so i remember a little <laughs> bit more of it than you um but it, it it's regardless of that it it is just it's great it, it's it's nick mayer again obviously coming back Bringing his own stamp on things, it has a lot of connective tissue to the Wrath of Khan and the Search for Spock, thematically and in terms of tone. And it's a great parallel for, and this this ties into to an extent to the uh, the, the sixty series in many respects as well because it does allegorize and, and parallel the end of the Cold War. You know, the, it came out the year the Berlin Wall came down, so. The whole basis of it and the thesis of it is that it's paralleling the end. You know, the Klingons and Ruripenthes is the not Ruripenthes, Praxis, the moon that blew up. My mistake. Um, it parallels the uh, the the fall of the fall of um, of the Soviet Union. Praxis, in many respects, is Chernobyl. You know, in in many ways, it has that. There's a lot of of that you know allegory going on, which is one of the things that Star Trek's so good at, and it and it plays with that idea of a once great empire crumbling. Due to all kinds of different concerns, and then you know people exploiting that with obviously the the ultimate conspiracy and everything that goes on. It's it's a different film to the Wrath of Khan. It's in many respects, it's much more of a of an investigative mystery. You know, Spock spends most of it playing Columbo, really. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it works really well for that, and it has it ha- it brings. You know, Shatner brought a lot more of the color and camp back into it, while Nimoy brought a lot more of the heart and soul. What Mayer does he keeps that heart, but he he brings it much more down to a gritty sense of earth and he and he injects much more of that that imp, that power and that level of you know naval authority into it again and i, I think he what he creates is a, is a is a really fitting send off for a cast who by this point you know it, it's not, it's fitting i think that the last film really just set them up with a challenge it's not an easy breeze in in some respects. The final frontier. You could have ended it there, but I think it would have been a little bit too easy. I like the fact that the final film, they they you know they they have a fight on their hands, and it's good. It's good in that respect. This is a is a perfect
0: conclusion to the original series, calling calling back to the whole well, Russia was the Klingon Empire back in the sixties, and so we're calling that back current events. Uh, you know, I guess my only thing would be yes. We were younger at the time, but they were still current enough events, so we kind of knew what was going on, and you know that was that was the hot topic, at, you know, school and whatnot, political science, whatever you want to call it. Do you think the metaphors here are going to be lost on future generations, Tony? Because it's so it's so A to B, Russia, Klingons, United States, Starfleet. Uh, will that be lost on people who have, really have no concept of what even the Cold War was?
1: It's a, it's a good question, actually. It it may be. Maybe I mean it's it's that whole thing of that you know there is a sense right now, and this is why we need Star Trek back more than ever. You know, pure Star Trek in exploring the human condition and and the world. In that it, we feel I feel like we're in we're in a uh, an area of of you know the the human condition now and the human adventure that is forgetting history and we are starting to forget some of the key you know constants of our past and the important moments you know like and you know the fall of the Soviet Union was you know the 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 really next big thing after the end of the second world war and star trek was born out of the you know the hope and the you know the color that came out of that you know in dark, one of the darkest periods of our entire you know history you know star trek came out of that 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 as a as a beacon of hope and trying to explore you know and look towards a brighter future and and the undiscovered country taps into that level of you know, that hope that's still there. We've got older. You know, things have changed. People have moved on. The world is starting to change. But that sense of hope when the war came down, and in this case, the possibility of peace with the Klingons after, you know, a level of, um, you know, uh, conflict. And that final, you know, that's that final sequence where Kirk it, it saves as it Burr and she says, you know, um, you've restored my father's faith. And he says, well, you've restored my son's. It's a personal thing for Kirk, but it's a bigger idea of these these former enemies coming together. Which now we've got away from. And we're getting to a point now where these old conflicts don't seem to matter anymore. As we head potentially towards new ones, unfortunately. So yeah, maybe it will be. Or maybe it will be seen as something important, as this whole first phase of Star Trek will be seen with the original crew and the very first Kirk and Spock and co. As reflective of a time where we were thinking more about our past as we go forward, so I'd like to think in a way that the undiscovered country will be even more important as time goes on, and we reflect back on some of the mistakes we're making right now. I think that's quite deep. Sorry, that is pretty deep. But yeah, <laughs> but... h- how do I
0: follow that up? <laughs> <laughs> no, I-, I will say that you know I-, I think it's important when we talk about these social issues in Star Trek that uh, the films are not pretentious and they're not Star Trek Four, oh, no. the comedy film if there ever was one, talking about. You know, conservation, you know, wildlife, caring about the planet, right? Uh a political social issue, but couched in a very entertaining story where you don't feel like you're being preached to. And much in the same way Star Trek Six, right? It's talking about all all the things you just said. I won't even paraphrase you because you said it so well. Uh but all those things, but told in a engaging uh story, a thriller, you know, with with some comedy. I mean, there's some great comedy oh, yeah. here where Scotty's like, We're dead this box is. <laughs> i've been dead before that's brilliant that's brilliant would spock say that i don't know but i think it's hilarious i I think you would
1: i think you would all the the stuff as well with um kirk and kirk and bones on rura penthe there's some there's some comedy there as well with uh with what's the name the 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 shape change martia martia yeah 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 yeah, yeah. there's there's some good comedy there too
0: (laughs) i can't believe i kissed you must have been your lifelong ambition
1: (laughs) So sh- sh- the,
0: the beginning of Shatner's self awareness, which he has become so famous for, and, and it used to great success in the in the latter <laughs> stages of his career. Yeah. So there's all that going on, but at the same time, it's a very serious movie, uh, with obvious you know parallels to everything. And but you don't feel like oh I get it. We need to get along with our enemy, like you know you don't get cynical about it, right? Uh, because it's told so well, and I think that's the key. And, and man, so so again, what we're talking about here is these movies. They're so independent. They're so. Uh, just unique to each other. I defy you to find a film franchise where every movie is so completely different from the other. I mean, if you look at the Rocky movies, they're all exactly the same. <laughs> you know, they're all exactly the same. Yeah. And if you yeah. distill them down to the bare essentials, they're exactly the same. Where you can't, you can't do that with the original series movies. No. All right. I mean, if you, if you if you at the most base level, if you break them down, they're so different, and uh, they just hit on every level. I mean, technically, acting, music, uh, commentary, social commentary, you know, entertainment value. It they're they're Star Trek at its best, and you know that's that's why I'm glad we get to talk about them here on Standard Orbit because we're in a unique position. We get to talk about the original series, we get to talk about the original series movies, we get to talk about the Kelvin timeline movies. I love Star Trek 09. I really like. Beyond, I, I I go back and forth of which one is better. Into Darkness was kind of, you know, you're allowed one mulligan, right? So that's fine. We'll just, just keep giving us movies, right? Keep giving yeah. us movies so we, we get six or seven. And that way you can be like, because, oh, you know, if Star Trek, if these movies ended at five, people would hate Star Trek five. It would be the nemesis, yeah. right? Of, of there's series They're like, oh, look, you killed the movie, Shatner. Ah, you know, the worst <laughs> one's the last one. But now you have the you, we got Star Trek six and it's arguably the best one. Some people argue, and and it's you know it's they're right up there, right? They're all on the same level. So you can look back on this set of films and be like, yeah, you know they did it right. Uh, they they had they might have had a few uh, missteps here, but what uh, franchise doesn't? But ultimately, this is a great set of six movies, Star Trek at
1: its best. I can't put it better than that. I gotta say, definitely, and, and like you said, it, it is it is what I would go to first if I wanted to watch some Star Trek. It is what i would what I would seek at first, absolutely they are
0: awesome all right, Tony well, thanks for uh taking a trip down uh, Memory Lane with me about these <laughs> 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 Star Trek original series films uh, but if people want to find you on the internet where can they find you man i know you got a lot of stuff going on now with uh, black hole media right
1: yeah that's my uh, overarching website slash podcast network i'm on uh, twitter at black hole media uh, obviously which is a play on my name because i'm a massive egotist so i named my podcast network after myself uh, <laughs> um i'm the shatner of podcast networks uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um yeah you can find me there and uh, there we've we've got a couple of active podcasts right now we've got some in the vault um which can be found online but the two active ones are the x cast which is my x files podcast where we're going through all the episodes uh, it's a huge undertaking but we're we're halfway through season two so we've got a long way to go so if you're a fan of the x files come over and check us out uh, we're on twitter at the x underscore cast and there's also between the notes which is a film podcast which i run with my friend and journalist uh sean wilson and we uh, talk about film music including star trek in fact we uh, and we will be doing some star trek specific shows hopefully this year because we're both huge fans of, of a lot of the music that we've touched on today so uh we can find that at bt underscore the notes on uh on twitter so uh yeah look us up look at what we're doing um yeah it's all good stuff
0: yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been on the X-Cast. Brandon Shamatela from Melodic Trex has been on there. So uh, we're, we're having a lot of crossover here between us. So I'm li- looking forward to that. And hey, C- Cliff Eidelman's score for Star Trek 6, pretty good, huh?
1: Oh, great. Yeah, really, really good. Very different in many respects. But yeah, great.
0: So if you ever do a Cliff Idleman episode, let, let me know. I'd, I'd be interested to hear something else, uh,
1: some other, some more of his work and see what he's up to. Hey, well, you know, I wasn't planning it, but maybe I will now. That's, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> so yeah. I'll, cons- I'll consider it. There you go.
0: All right, Tony. Well, talking about the original series films isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week on Trek FM. Here's a quick look at some other things you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM,
1: Standard Orbit. And basically, we had this bonding experience where basically all of us cast members were like doing jumping jacks and push-ups in between days because we were trying not to get frostbite. And I uh, just remember... Uh, Benedict said something, he's like, I wonder if I can get a beer here while I'm, you know? Like, he's <laughs> <laughs> so like, JJ, is there a tap I can attach to one of these and we can maybe keep warm a different way. Literary treks. When it comes to these early novels, when they're written in a first season, they
0: don't always match up well with what we learn of the characters as the series progresses. Like, for example, I think the first couple books or so, uh, The Next Generation, there's scenes where Troy refers to
1: Will Riker as Bill. Melodic tricks. So what you're saying, if I
0: understand correctly, so let's say that there was a, a two-minute piece of music and it was played in five different episodes. And each of those episodes had a different part that sounded the best. So you spliced, you may have spliced together. Wow!
1: Continuing mission.
0: you know, we were pitching our idea, Don and I, to the folks at Starbase Studios. And I vowed to myself that I wasn't gonna walk on the bridge and then go sit immediately in the chair and have a picture taken of myself. However, as soon as I got on the bridge, I sat in the chair and I took a picture of myself. (laughs) Uh, So so it was like a kid in a candy store. And that's what else is happening on Trek.FM. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm and Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and also the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com trekfm, that's patreo dot trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers of Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts, Norman Lau, Aaron Harvey, and Nick Anastasio. Thank you so much for all your support of both Standard Orbit and TrekFM FM through Patreon. You can find Renee on Twitter at mres underscore 1701, Norm on Twitter at starfighter 1701, and our buddy Aaron Harvey on Twitter at geekfilter. And Nick isn't on Twitter, you can find him on Facebook and, of course, around the Babel Conference. As for us personally, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H on Twitter, and I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, about the Young Superman show from the early 2000s, and you can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. As for my regular co-host, Ken Tripp, you can find him on Twitter at BostonSCPO, so look him up on social media there. Well, that's going to do it, folks. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.